Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 98. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. Back once again this week to talk about Ant-Man and the Wasp, 2018's Ant-Man and the Wasp. So last week we talked about the first Ant-Man film, how unique it was to the MCU. And I think that when you have a cast that that is led by Paul Rudd, there's a certain... There's a certain, how do I want to put, there's a certain bit of comedy, there's a certain attitude you expect the film to carry with it, right? Sure. So that quirkiness. And I was curious to see in this movie if that quirkiness carried over or if they, for a lack of a better term, got it out of the way in the first one and took the second one a little bit more seriously. And... You know, especially when you get Evangeline Lilly now. I mean, because I remember when this movie came out, it was the two of them on the poster. So you knew she was going to have a beefed up role in this film. Mm -hmm. So I was curious to see if they go more for that traditional sort of superhero film because she was kind of a take no stuff, you know, pretty rock solid chick in the first movie Mm -hmm. or whether they were going to pull that yin and yang, not a good cop, bad cop, but if they were going to do that sort of opposites attract thing here in the second film. Right. Because the Ant-Man movies are so unique, not only because you have Paul Rudd and he is a certain brand of comedy, but what's really different about them. And what I love so much about this one is that you have a strong female lead. And that's not to say that Marvel hasn't done it before this, but you have Pepper and she's not in a suit until the very, very end of Endgame. Right. You have Natasha, Black Widow, but when we met her, she was already the kick-ass chick. However, she doesn't have a suit. Right. And really, until we get Captain Marvel, who we see come from sort of normal girl. Well, no, because she's in space. But we we see her training. We see the call to action. We see her become Captain Marvel. Yeah. You really didn't get the girl in the suit. Really, Hope Van Dyme is the first female superhero in the MCU. She is. Um, So... Interested to see where they went with this. We're going to jump right into the plot here. We did not do a linear review of the film last week. Um, We kind of just gave you the plot and broke it all down. But we are going to do the linear review this week because... This one's a bit more involved. This is a little bit more involved. And the thing with this movie that they kind of did... I mean, they did do it in the last one, but I feel like they do even more so here is... I pointed out last week... Running time under two hours for the first Ant-Man movie. This one, again, under two hours. But they're finding a way of of taking two hours worth of information and giving it to you in an hour and 55 minutes. So a lot is going on. So it's sort of easy to get lost. I feel like this one is even more science heavy, too. Yeah, I think so. It takes place two years after the Avengers event in Germany when Ant-Man was a part of that whole thing, which I believe believe that was Civil War. 
think that was Captain America's Civil War, where they had that Avengers event between Iron Man and Captain, and they had their respective sides that were fighting on their behalf. Right, because that's where they introduced Spider-Man and Black Panther for the first time, and we got Ant-Man as well. Right. So two years after that, Hank and Hope believe that they have found a way to retrieve uh, Janet, Hank's wife and Hope's mother, from the quantum realm. Scott, who is days away from his house uh, house arrest release, sees a vision of the quantum realm, as well as a memory Janet had of playing hide-and-seek with Hope. And he uses a burner phone to call Hank to tell him. After receiving the message, Hope kidnaps Scott to bring him back to their lab while leaving his ankle monitor on an oversized ant. Because he's not supposed to leave the house, and the FBI is keeping an eye on him. And we see that very early on here. We, The movie really does start, though, with a flashback, right? Of when Hope's parents, Hank and Janet, they go off to defuse that missile that we had talked about in the first film. They go a little bit more in-depth. What I like about this scene is that they used a lot of the footage from the first film. And that's exactly what I hate about it. What? Why? Why do you like it? Because I have seen movies, Back to the Future 2, and it's a little bit different because they recast the role of Jennifer. Elizabeth Shue played her in the second and third movies. Right, right. So they had to reshoot the end of the first Back to the Future movie with where we're going, we don't need roads. They reshot it because they had to get her in the scene because the second movie picks up exactly where the first movie leaves off. And there's a in in that scene, there's dialogue where Marty says basically to Doc, what happens to us in the future? What do we become jerks or something? He doesn't say jerks, but we're going to use the TV version of it. And in the first movie, it plays out as what do we become jerks or something? And then Doc, no, 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 Marty, it's fine. It's your kids, Marty. Something's got to be done about your kids. In the, in the second movie, when they reshot it, Marty goes, what, do we become jerks or something? One Mississippi, two Mississippi, three. Oh, no, 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 you and Jennifer are fine. It's your kids, Marty. Something's got to be done about your kids. Christopher Lloyd, as great as he is, does not even deliver the line anywhere near the way he did in the first movie. And I, was in, and I was distracted to the point where I did not realize until about halfway through the movie they recast Jennifer because I was so distracted by how poorly they reshot the first scene of the second movie. Wow. So when I see that you've used the original footage, there's consistency there, and I'm more comfortable with it. To which I say, somebody was under a very tight budget. Back to the Future was not lazy because they reshot it. Ant-Man, Peyton Reed was either lazy or, again, maybe it was a budgetary constraint. Um, To me, recycling the footage just proves my point last week that you don't need the first film. Or that it could have been condensed. Now... At the end of last week, admittedly, I, I did say I think that you could have brought Ant-Man into the Avengers with a couple of throwaway lines. 
after watching this, my opinion has changed because I forgot that, oh, tiny plot point where he does come back from the quantum realm and springboards oh, the entire plot of in- Infinity War. I, Endgame. Endgame. It's hard to keep track because there's so many of these movies. It is. And admittedly, I have not watched Ant-Man as much as I have some of the other trilogies. Right. So my opinion just came from thinking about the Pym Particles and Ant-Man becoming a giant in the final showdown. Forgetting about that little part. Now, yeah. obviously, having just watched this, that's more fresh in my mind. So I'll save that for my final review whether or not my opinion has changed of Ant-Man as a whole. But this just justifies my feeling about the first film that you could have condensed a lot. I think we'll both agree that the de-aging is still awesome, though. You don't have to do it nearly as much on Michelle Pfeiffer as you do on Michael Douglas. He's aged well. She's aged incredibly. Well, I'm also wondering if that's why they chose to recycle the footage rather than put these two aging actors in the suits again, if that was even them, they, they could have just, you know, superimposed their faces onto a body double because there, you know, there was a lot of the wasp is flying. There was a certain amount of physical work that they had to do the first time they shot this. Right. And I think they recycled it without even using Michelle Pfeiffer. But, um, yeah, I do like that part where where we see them as a younger family um, and the de-aging was amazing. I agree. The only thing I don't like about this scene is right before Janet goes in to defuse that bomb, she has the most cliched line that a sacrificing parent is ever going to have. Yeah. Tell Hope I love her. Boom! And in she goes. It's, I mean, I, I understand you want that message sent, but it is... So cliched. I mean, this movie at the time of this recording is only two years old. Heard it, seen it, bought the VHS, the DVD, the Blu-ray, and then the digital copy. You know, like, it. That's how, that's how far lines like that have been going back. It's, it's just been in cinema forever. No, and, and I... Ex- I'm, I'm kind of tired of hearing that the same way... I don't need to see Bruce and Martha Wayne get shot anymore. There are just certain things we've seen it. Stop showing it to us. I also expect a lot more from Marvel, especially when Paul Rudd has writing credits. He's better than that. Yeah. Um, What I really do love about the story and the setup is the tunnel scene with Cassie. Yes. I think it's really clever how they made this tunnel system in the house and now she gets to play along on his adventures. Um, But also they layer that with the house arrest, which I think adds so much more to the story because it's always a race against time for him. Always. I love that setup. Not just for the story, but I love the setup in the house with Cassie. Mm -hmm. I think it shows how much he has grown as a father. Also, how much... Maggie and Paxton have grown their relationship with him because they're hugging him and you're getting out and we're so proud of you. Like there's been so much growth in the two years since the Germany incident. I love those family hugs. I think those they're hysterical. They're hysterical. And I love that he has kept the quote unquote ant names going. Yes. Toinette and Antonia. I, I love how he is still doing those things. I also believe that, this is his house. 
I believe that this is how Paul Rudd behaves in his home at all times. Yeah, as far as the slides on the stairs, I don't know that that has as much to do with Cassie as it does that he just has slides on the stairs. Yeah. How about when um, when Cassie sees Luis and she yells, oh no, the fuzz. <laughs> we talked last week. You had said she's such a cute child actress. She becomes so much more endearing in this film because they gave her more of a role. Absolutely, yeah. And I love the ongoing bit with the world's greatest grandma. I think the trophy is very funny when they plant it in the beginning, but I love that it comes full circle. Right. Yeah, it was a gift that she had given him, and it was the only one that they had, but she wanted to give him the trophy, and it comes into play later on. I also want to talk about the introduction here of Agent Wu. So... The reason why the FBI showed up to the house is as they go through their little slip and slide of fun, they go out the back door. His ankle crashes through the wooden fence, so therefore his ankle monitor has breached the perimeter. They think he has left his house arrest, and they need to come. What I love about Wu here is how he just goes off. You know, he tries to sit there and he he tries to talk to Cassie because she asks why it is that they keep bothering her dad. Mm -hmm. And he tries to, like, break it down and explain it the way a child could understand. But he gets so involved with explaining that he forgets he's talking to a child. And then he just starts speaking as an FBI agent as if he was talking to an adult. Also really clever writing, though, because yeah. it's funny, but you also get your refresher of why Scott Lang is in this situation. Yeah, because as I pointed out before, there is a lot of Marvel movies. And because him in particular seemed to weave his way in and out of a couple of different movies, it's all one Marvel franchise. But we have now seen him in The Avengers. We've seen him in his own franchise. We've seen him in Captain America. He just weaves his way in and out of so many franchises that it is hard sometimes to keep track of what adventures he has had. Oh, you needed it. That That is more for the audience than it is for Cassie, really. Hey, absolutely. I don't know that I like the Wu character. I go back and forth because, I mean, he's very much like a Reno 911 or... Um, and he's played by Randall Park, so he's a comedian anyway. Right, but... I guess I don't like that he lets his guard down. I, I like that he's kind of, he's constantly getting foiled, even though he's the one who's supposed to be enforcing the law and making sure that Scott is doing what he's supposed to be doing. So I think that part is funny, but I don't like how he constantly lets his guard down. Like later on, he tells Scott that he's being hard on him because he needs the win. Mm -hmm. really? I don't believe you anymore at that point, you know? And I completely don't respect your authority. I can, you know what? I think I will agree with you there. I think they play a little too much on the funny because yeah. they do a better job fleshing out Paxton as an authority figure who's also funny because Wu sort of, where, where Paxton toes the line, Wu is very much on the other side of the line. I, I like it because I think it fits the tone of the movie. But from your perspective and to your point, I think they do it better with Paxton if you're trying to toe the line a little bit more. Especially because as much as Paxton wanted to get him, I mean, that was a little bit 
more of a struggle because he loves Cassie and he's going to hurt her by doing the right thing or the right what he thinks is the right thing by yeah. arresting Scott. Right. Um, so there's a lot more of a, an internal conflict there. But in this case, now that he let him off the hook and he erased the whole record, he also did it very quietly. Yeah. Whereas Wu, of course he's going to get foiled because he makes his intentions known. He makes his next move known. Yeah. Throughout this entire film. Will, this is my question for you. Will you ever watch the Partridge family the same way? Nope. No. This montage is everything. This is Scott's last two days on house arrest. And to the tune of Come On, Get Happy, they're showing all of his activities and passing the time. To me, this is where if you don't believe Paul Rudd as a leading man... Get on board because he carries this so well. I mean, I even said it last week when we were talking about the first Ant-Man. I don't buy him as a hardened criminal because he's just too funny. But this is where people who don't take him seriously as an actor should. We know he's a comedian. We know he's great at improv. I think what makes him so funny is that he's got the wit of George Carlin with a baby face. That's the whole thing, and that's why it's so awkward, especially when you see him come back with something sharp. But to me, this is where he's the best. He's getting a little bit of the physical comedy in there. He's singing, which is always hilarious, and he's doing it all by himself. He's not playing off of anyone. Yeah, he carries the entire scene. He carries the whole montage. And Michelle Pfeiffer had said herself after the production that they broke the mold after they made Paul Rudd because of the same thing. He's got all of these quirks and he's an adult but he's got that childish face so he, he comes off very innocent and charming so he is so unique and i think you're right that's why it works so well for this character and i think for people who still think of him as josh and clueless because that was his first role you think of him as the rom-com guy and people forget that he was in halloween h2o I believe, and he played a villain in that movie. I think everybody from the 90s was in that movie, though. But he played a villain in that movie. Mm. I believe it was H2O. I don't think it was Resurrection. It was H2O. Again, you want to talk about a franchise you can't keep track of. And I think there are just, there are certain things about him where maybe people, they don't give him the benefit of the doubt because then you get into the scene where they're explaining the hide-and-seek memory. He's telling them, this being Hank and Hope, what he has seen because they've now kidnapped him and brought him back to their lab because he's had no contact with them, not allowed to have contact with them since the Avengers thing because now they're wanted because they're not supposed to be working with this technology either. So he called them on an on emergency burner. phone, yeah, broke the phone because then he realized that this vision he had seemed really silly and they sent an ant to take his place in the ankle monitor. Right, so that within itself is silly, but then they get him back to the lab, and he's explaining the dream, and Hope says, was the little girl hiding in the wardrobe? No, she was hanging in a big dresser, and they're like, that's the wardrobe. And it's, I know it's funny, but I can see where they're trying to set up this very serious scene. And it can be a little jarring when you put the awkward comedy in there, like when... She's explaining, you know, she has this beautiful memory with her mother, Hope, 
who she lost as a child. And she goes, I always used to hide in there when we played hide and seek, to which point he says, I don't think you really understood the gist of the game. And like, I know <laughs> it's funny. It's a funny line, but the movie does enough to insert comedy in. They did that in the first. I can see where people get a little tired. If you're a tried and true comic book fan that has been waiting years to see these movies, if you love Ant-Man and you've been waiting for years to see the Ant-Man movie, I'm sure there were people that groaned when they heard it was Paul Rudd. And I think he's great. Don't get me wrong. I'm not taking anything away from him or his performance. I think he's spectacular. I love him as Scott Lang. But it's moments like this where I can see why people don't give him the benefit of the doubt because you're trying to have this heartfelt scene and here they are trying to force more comedy in. Right. It's like he can't take anything seriously. And sometimes in these Marvel movies, you do need to when you're trying to raise the stakes. But that's what sets this apart and makes it so different. And that's what I'm saying. If you don't believe Paul Rudd, go back to the scene before in the montage. Absolutely. What I also really like that they did here... um, is that they planted Janet's antenna, which we do come to find out later. But what seems like a forced plot point that he's having this vision, it really does come full circle later on. Yeah. Believing that Janet has left a message in Scott's head, they all plan to set forth into the quantum realm through a tunnel that Hope and Hank have created, but they need one more piece to stabilize it. So Hope sets off to see Sonny Birch, who has been selling them black market equipment upon exposing her true identity because she's been using a fake name this whole time. Birch says he will only give Hope the part that she needs if they go into business together because he sees quantum technology as very, uh, being very luc- uh, lucrative, but she refuses. Instead, she dons the wasp suit and fights off Birch and his men in, its, in an attempt to get the part that she needs, but before it's over, the ghost, a quantumly unstable being, arrives to also steal the tech. Scott puts on the Ant-Man suit, which is a prototype, so it's just not working for him properly um, to try and help. But the ghost gets away with Pym's lab. With no one else to turn to, Pym then goes to his estranged former partner, Bill Foster, for help. I want to put a pin in this here because I want to talk about Walton Goggins. I want to talk, yeah, definitely about the cast in this scene. Because this is where this, I think the movie really starts to take off here. Because similar to the first Ant-Man film, you have a villain. Is he inherently sinister? Not really, other than he was going to sell the tech to Hydra. You know, again, these films are so unique. It's it's not necessarily an alien being that's looking for world domination. Here you have an unstable ghost. We get her storyline fleshed out in a few minutes here, but you also get Goggins, who, you know, his character Birch is just in it for greed. No different than the villain in the first movie, but Goggins is great in every single thing that he does. Whether it's uh, whether it's this, whether it's Sons of Anarchy, I mean, this not for guy, kids, not for kids, definitely not for but kids, especially his character. This guy takes it to the house every single time he has a role. 
I think that's why he works so well as a villain here, too, because his delivery in this and in Sons is not much different. I think that's part of his Southern charm, yeah. if you will. Yeah. But because he's got such a lovely speaking voice, it kind of lulls you into that false sense of security. So mm-hmm. he's very unsuspecting as the villain here because he's so calm and he's just got such a an almost relaxing presence. Yeah. So it the delivery works so well here. I just, I love him in everything that he does. I think he's one of the most underrated actors. So I'm really glad that he got showcased in a Marvel here. Yeah. Um, but I also want to talk about Evangeline Lilly here because this is where we really start to see her go from tough chick to superhero. Admittedly, I really thought that she got cast in the first Ant-Man because, you know, she did Lost. She's obviously got a huge television show under her belt. She hadn't done that much since then. And I thought they really just wanted a name actress that they knew could handle the workaholic tough cookie role. And I think she pulled that off brilliantly as hope. But what I really wasn't expecting was to see her come into her own as the wasp. And, you know, they production said they did it very deliberately. They did not call this Ant-Man 2. They called it Ant-Man and the Wasp. Now me, knowing nothing about the comic books, knowing nothing about them, you know, having to be a tag team, I just thought maybe they stepped up her role because they had done a sequel. I didn't realize that those seeds were planted from very early on that she was going to progress into the Wasp. And what I really didn't know was how much Evangeline Lilly contributed to this role in shaping the character, in shaping the way that she fights, um, and in championing Michelle Pfeiffer to be her mother. I mean, she really shaped a lot of this movie. And I think that that's something that goes unnoticed as far as her contributions to the Marvel Universe as a whole. Yeah, to the point where they had spent a couple of weeks working on the choreography for the fight scene here. She finally gets on set, and she had a lot of say in regards to her stunt double with the body language. Like, this is how I would move. Mm -hmm. So they would practice it with Evangeline Lilly, and then they had the stunt double come in, and she would kind of fine-tune it and tweak it a little bit. And once they felt like you believed that was her in the suit, they moved forward with it. Very different from somebody like, let's say, Kira Knightley, who was just like, I'm in a pirate movie. I want a sword fight. Yeah. I mean, she did do a lot with her character, but I guess what I was surprised to learn was how much Evangeline Lilly was like into the comic books and into the superhero role. I I really didn't, I really wasn't expecting that from her. Agreed. I also like here the introduction of the ghost because she's ghost-like in that she's quantumly unstable. So she kind of fades in and out. At times you see two and three of her and it looks like she's honest. She looks like a glitch. She looks like something you'd see out of Wreck-It Ralph um, when Vanellope is glitching. But I like the fact that she does, not just in her appearance, but also in her body language, seems supernatural. So I think the name Ghost fits her well, and I thought it was a really good introduction here because the whole time you're kind of lulled into this false sense of story. I'm not Mm going to say false sense of security. False sense of story where 
Birch and his men are fighting with the Wasp. And you think, okay, here's my villain for the movie. And then out of nowhere, here comes this ghost, and Birch has no idea who she is either. So it's like, who is this now? What's this third entity coming into the room that's going to add drama and really drive this thing forward? Because otherwise, if Birch is the villain, it's really just a rehash of the first movie with the Wasp. Exactly. And right now they have you so focused on we have to save Janet and this is the piece we need. You're not expecting him to become a subplot villain. Right. So I thought it was a really good introduction for her. I also love that before they go to Foster, they need a place to hide temporarily. And they go to Luis, Dave, and Kurt who are now, along with Scott, running a company called XCon Security. We get Luis. He's back. We saw him a little bit in the beginning of the movie, but other than him sort of interacting with Scott a little bit in that opening scene, you don't get Luis as we got Michael Pena in the first movie. Here he is in the second movie, and he says, Dr. Pym, in your hour of need... Here we are again. Who would have thought? <laughs> it's it's hysterical, and I love that they're trying to do this legitimate business. And he's like, your lab was stolen because the ghost gets her hands on the lab. And we didn't talk about the lab. Let's talk about that. I'm going to put a pin in Luis for a second. Sorry, Michael. But we're going to talk about the lab. The shrinking Pimtech lab. They literally shrink it down to the size of a carry case, and they have it with a handle and a roller. And they have a collection of Hot Wheels cars so they can switch vehicles. And not be detected. It's hysterical. This is where I remember seeing this in theaters. I was like, okay, Ant-Man, here we are. This is what I wanted out of the first one. You're using your setting. You're using the story. And you're using the shrinking and enlarging to move it all forward. Right. And thank you. God, they got rid of that horrible POV warp that they were doing in the yeah. first one that drove me crazy and made me nauseous. Actually nauseous. I love that the thing is on a roller cart. I love that Brilliant. it is a roller cart. Brilliant. And, and the ghost gets her hands on it and, and she takes off. So now they got nowhere to hide. That's how they end up with them. But I love how he's fleshing this out about how she stole the lab. And he goes, well, we have plenty of affordable options here for your security <laughs> need. Like he's just now in this salesman role. I'm trying to be legitimate. It's absolutely brilliant. Michael Pena kills it again. I love the story. All three of them are great because yeah. they're putting so much pressure on themselves to become legitimate. And we didn't mention this when we reviewed it last week. I didn't even realize that was T.I. Neither did I. I was really impressed with him. And as a group, the three of them kind of steal every scene that they're in. Yeah, they do. And they do it here as well. I, I also like the line, when they go to visit uh, Foster, and we're going to meet him in just a moment here, I love that they call out how ridiculous they look because, like so many other films, they're trying not to be detected. So they have what? Baseball cap. And sunglasses. Again, it's been played out a hundred times, but unlike the tell hope I love her line, Paul Rudd 
actually picks fun at this. He goes, this isn't a disguise. We look like ourselves at a baseball game. And I like the fact that they call that out because as soon as they put that on, I'm kind of like, here we go again. Another comic book trope, another cinema trope. And they kind of turn it on its head the minute that he calls it out. Because to me, the worst offender, I'm thinking of the cap in the scene where him and Scarlett Johansson or Black Widow go to the mall. Yes. And it's the same thing. It's the hoodie, the hat, the sunglasses. Um, And they do kind of make it different in that instance because they start making out so that you can't see their faces. Yeah. So that was a good twist on it. But here... I like that they didn't, they kind of back themselves into a corner. So they just call out everyone that's ever done it. Right. Um, Lawrence Fishburne. Yes. As Bill Foster. Excellent casting. We, we learn that he is a, he's the former partner. We said the estranged partner. I believe they were in S.H.I.E.L.D. together. But Fishburne is another actor that is literally good in everything that he does. Yes. And I thought that he was excellent casting here. So believable. To a point where when you first meet him, you're thinking he's going to be the scorned former partner. Yeah. But he's not. He's helpful. So then when he double crosses them, you're really not expecting it. Exactly. Let's talk about a scene here as well where after all of this happens, they're trying to... They're they're trying to get Scott into the Ant-Man suit that is not a prototype that doesn't keep shorting out with the regulator. And he told them earlier in the film that he had destroyed the Ant-Man suit, which is what Pym told him to do should he ever be caught. He lied. It is taped to the bottom of the best grandma ever uh, trophy. World's greatest grandma. World, whatever it is, that Cassie gave him as a gift. Cassie took it to show and tell However, Scott's regulator has now malfunctioned again, and he is about the size of a five-year-old boy. And he and Evangeline Lilly go to the elementary school to retrieve this trophy. How great is it they put him in clothes that they found in the lost and found? This whole thing to me is knock it out of the park brilliant because... Even just something as simple as the regulator. You think it's a throwaway line, but it becomes a huge part of the story because obviously it's malfunctioning. It's causing a lot of problems for him, but it also develops the relationship between him and the Wasp because now he needs her to fight, which we saw in the beginning when, you know, Hope is establishing herself as her own superhero she does get in hot water and he's got a tag in to save her. So you do see them start working together, which again, I think they did in that kitchen scene so much better and use the set so much better because they went for a more practical honey. I shrunk the kids sort of aesthetic for it. Right. Um, but here again, he's stuck. He looks like a kid, which serves for them getting around the school and him not getting caught, but it's just hysterical that he is stuck in this position. And I love that they put the oversized sweatshirt on him. They totally patronize him the whole time where she's like, Oh, you almost got it. You almost got it. And they get back in the van and he goes, 
Hey, little buddy, how was school? Do you want cheese stick in a juice box? And Scott goes, do you really have those things? <laughs> but I want to point out, first, I would love to think they used a practical effects or a, a practical set for a lot of those close-up shots with Scott, although I'm sure it's CGI. No, well, they, they did do a set build for it. They had, I mean, they, they CGI the steps, but when they had him running down with his arms flapping yeah. in the sweatshirt, yeah. he was really doing that, and they just built out a huge uh, staircase, and oh, they good. green screened it. Oh, they green screened it. But he's really running down the steps. Right. They built the steps large, and he is running down them, obviously, as his normal size. Right. They just put it to scale in a CGI background. I also like in this scene that the physical comedy is fantastic yes. from Paul Rudd because you know him as being quirky, you know him as sort of being sarcastic, but I like the fact that he got to show off more of his comedic chops, which I'm sure infuriated some people. Uh, some of the real purists that are going to hate everything because Disney made it. You know, when it comes to people that really defend, oh, I don't know, Marvel, oh, I don't know, Star Wars. I think that this gave him an opportunity to show that he's more than just sitting there and being awkward. Like when he's got to hoist himself up into the van. It's it's hysterical. Yeah, it's Everything so about good. It is so good. Well, back to the story here. When they eventually locate the lab, this is Hank, Hope, and Scott, an attempt to extract it, they are captured by the ghost, who we learn is actually Ava Starr, the daughter of another former Pym partner from S.H.I.E.L.D., who died along with his wife while experimenting with quantum physics, leaving her completely unstable because the machine that he was experimenting on explodes killed the parents but this quantum energy sort of just hit the kid from a distance and that's what sort of sent her out of whack we also learn that she is dying and in constant pain due to her condition and foster talk about the double cross is working with her to save her life using the quantum energy that is trapped in Janet. This is his plan the whole time. But Hope and Pym believe that this would eventually kill Janet. And Foster feels bad. Having worked with the father, he didn't want to just leave her to die. She was a child when this happened, so he sort of takes her in. Um, they eventually escape with the help uh, of Pym's aunts. Again, we're going to put up in this I want to talk about this scene because a lot happens here in a very small period of time I like the ghost storyline me too a lot me too I like that similar to the first Ant-Man movie this is not somebody out to be a global powerhouse they're not there to take over the world this is very much on a micro level she's trying to save herself there are a few faults with it, though. The first, I think at times, it, ta it, it takes a little too long to tell. Or maybe it's not that they take too long to tell her story. I think they try to stuff 10 pounds of stuff in a 5-pound bag. The scene is very wordy. 
And I think it leads you to believe it's longer than it is. I agree with that because that's the one time I've ever felt like this movie was dragging because it does seem like they they're in that flashback forever. And also when she's telling Scott about what she's trying to do, it does feel like it drags on quite a bit. I feel like they could have simplified that whole thing. If she could have simplified her condition and, be, and had said, I need quantum energy to stabilize the quantum e- energy inside of Janet. And that's what we're going to do. You know, and uh, of course, I'm, I'm very much paraphrasing how they would use this. But there was, I think there was a way to tighten it up a little bit. Because I think that the fact that it is so wordy hurts the pacing. The dialogue at times is also a problem. Because as she's explaining this, she says, my parents were killed. I wasn't so lucky. So you, you sort of put out there the fact that, in your opinion, you would have been luckier if you had been killed rather than, rather than have to live through this condition. Yet you continue to fight and hurt and kill in order to get better. So were you lucky unlucky i feel like that raises a lot of questions because the statement that she's making does not necessarily mirror what her motivations are if she wants to say something to the effect of i was not lucky enough to die instead i've been left to live with this condition that i'm out there to fix again i'm not a screenwriter so some of you are screaming at your phone right now there was a way of not contradicting yourself. I feel like this is a total contradiction between how she feels and how she's acting. I totally appreciate what you're saying. And you're right. It is a contradiction. But I think that she means she wasn't so lucky because don't forget part of this lengthy backstory that she's giving is also that she was weaponized and made to fight. So I think that's what she's talking about is that she didn't have a choice to become a killer and they forced her into doing that. So I think that's what she's talking about. She wants, they, they could have, well, I mean, they, they shouldn't have added more dialogue, but they should have established in some concise way that she wants to not only survive, but she is also fighting for her freedom. With that said, too, what I also think they could have done here, and maybe this would have tightened it a little bit more, I don't find her as scary as she could have been. Because when we first meet her, we see the glitch but you don't really think that much of it because you think that she's a supernatural being because she's going through walls. Then when we see that she can hone that to physically fight, like when she punches her arm right through Michael Douglas's neck, yeah, that's when I was kind of like, oh, clearly she's the villain and we don't know what's going to happen right. because she can go through walls and then she can choose to be solid. So I feel like they could have played with that a little bit more instead of just establishing that she's in pain and that it takes an enormous amount of her energy when she needs to be physical. Yeah, I would agree with you there. So I think maybe if they had focused on that aspect of it in this scene, they maybe could have shortened it up a little bit more. Sure. Hank and Hope open the tunnel again 
and through Scott, receive a message from Janet confirming that she's still alive, but also letting them know that their window to retrieve her is closing. Birch tracks them down because they have now gotten the lab and they've basically set up in the woods. Birch has tracked them down after giving Luis truth serum, even though they swear it's not truth serum, but it really is. He also alerts uh, the FBI of their whereabouts because he's got a mole inside the FBI. He helps to protect him, so he feeds him information like, hey, I've got Pym and Van Dyne. Come get him. This truth serum thing. I want to know how many takes they needed <laughs> to get through this because it does not get old. I love that they bought Luis's long-winded explanations, which we thought were funny in the first one, full circle and become a really big plot point now. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. Well, while he is informing the FBI of their whereabouts, they know they have to get out of there because Luis has now called Scott to say the FBI is coming with Birch. So Scott rushes home in order to be in the house when Wu gets there because he knows he's going for him, but Hank and Hope are arrested. Scott, after he fools Wu and says, I've been here the whole time, breaks Hope and Hank out of jail, and again, they find the lab. After they find the lab, they open the tunnel, and Hank goes into the quantum realm to find Janet. Birch and his men interfere again, but are fought off by Luis, Dave, and Kurt. I want to talk about a lot that's happening here. Specifically, I want to talk about the special effects again once they get into the quantum realm. Because I know that you did not love a lot of the special effects of the first movie because you felt that it was at times nauseating and I can see while he's tumbling through the quantum realm and getting sucked around that you can sort of lose track of where you are and lose track of your perception, your depth perception and all of that. Well, what bothered me about the quantum realm was that feeling of the void. Like, to me, they did it effectively, but what really bothered me was the POV shot. And not not even POV because we're not looking through Scott's eyes. The camera is shaking in tandem with what he is doing. Right. And when he's falling through the floors the first time he shrinks and they just have this weird warpy filter on it. It actually messed with my head. Did they do the quantum realm in totality better in this movie? So much better. I wish the first movie didn't exist. Even though you, you like the first movie, he would be fine if it didn't exist. I like the first movie because Paul Rudd is a genius. If, if we, well, I, I don't want to say it. I don't want to give away the final okay. review. But speaking of Paul Rudd's genius, I don't want to get too far ahead before, because I, we just need to talk about how brilliant he is again. When he channels Janet, yes. and she's speaking through him, but he has to take on her mannerisms and her oh voice. God. Amazing. It, it's absolutely it's really, amazing. really good. Jelly bean. Yeah, it's really good. Part of this interference with uh, Birch and his men include a chase scene because they're trying to get the lab back. And, and again, 
in in the essence of trying to save time because sometimes the plots especially when we try to simplify them they still seem to go on forever so in an effort to simplify i'm not going to sit there and say well then then they got in the car and then they chased them and then scott became a giant and they thought he was a whale which i'm not making this up these are all things that actually happen in and the it's movie. san francisco and there were hills so is it a good chase scene or is it a ripoff of Michael Bay in The Rock? I am so happy you brought that up because that is exactly what was going through my mind. I mean, I think just given the setting, any movie that takes place in San Francisco, you're immediately going to think about The Rock because it's Alcatraz. That's where it is. Right. So it's built in. I actually think that they did a brilliant job because even though you are thinking about the car chase I mean first of all it's Michael Bay who as much as I do love him it's gratuitous it's gratuitous crashing it's gratuitous water spray it's gratuitous fire it's gratuitous Megan Fox yes exactly even though she's not in the rock but it's just over the top and what I think this movie did so successfully was that they pulled off a car chase all on their own. And that is because they started using the shrinking and the enlarging brilliantly. It becomes a part of their story. They need it as an escape mechanism. And it's what makes this chase so drastically different. Well done. And they get Luis involved. And he's in a car that's using that shrink technology, too. I think the snatch and grab that goes on here, I really like it. I think that it carries the heist feeling from the first movie over. So, again, I think there's a lot of consistency. And I don't think that the attitude really changes from the first to the second movie, which was the question I posed at the beginning of this episode. Does it carry over or do they try to take it far more seriously now that we're towards the end of the film? I think it's clear Ant-Man, much like Guardians of the Galaxy, is its own very unique franchise. Thor, for example, was very serious to the point of almost being silly like Shakespeare in the park, and that was the fish out of water when he leaves... uh, when he, when he comes to the planet Earth in the first film um, for the first time, you know, and it's, I want another, and he smashes the coffee cup. But, you know, after he leaves Asgard, whereas by the time you get to the third movie, it's Ragnarok, and it's very funny. Great film. We'll talk about it eventually on the show. But you see a change there. You don't see the change in Guardians... You know, and you don't really see the change here. It's, I think that they're so unique to the MCU for that reason. That's a really great point, though, about the feel of the first one being carried through and, and the heist being carried through. And I think that is also what sets it apart from a Michael Bay chase scene and makes it stand on its own. Sure. Um, what also sets it apart, like you were saying, I agree, is the comedy. When he is giant Ant-Man... And he's riding around on the truck like it's a little scooter. Yeah. Brilliant. I, I think that's so smart. The, the Pez thing, that's kind of a given. But I think the truck thing was absolutely hysterical. And, you know, again, something that I thought was a throwaway line when uh, 
he's comparing notes to uh, Foster. Yes. About, you know, you think it's just kind of a... Uh, a measuring contest. A measuring contest. They're kind of, you know, beating their chests a little bit about how big they grew in the suit. They're talking about, it's peppered in there, how tired they become. Right. And you don't realize that he has now spent all of his energy and that's why he ends up falling asleep in the water, which again is, you know, hysterical because there's a boat and they're whale watching. Yeah. And they think he's breaching. Yeah, it, that was really good. So Janet now, she is retrieved from the quantum realm. The family is reunited. She gives Ava some of her quantum energy and she stabilizes her. Scott arrives back at home in time to be released from his house arrest and he goes on to, I suppose, live a life where he and Cassie paint the town red and eat ice cream until they puke because that's what he told her was going to happen. Um, and we don't know how that story ends because we don't have the third Ant-Man film yet. Um, but that is that is the plot of, of Ant-Man and the Wasp. How do you feel about the end of the movie? Because, I mean, Goggins... Oh, I keep calling... I keep wanting to call him Goggins. But Birch and his men are arrested after they're subdued by Dave, Kurt, and Luis. And they get their dose of truth serum. Right. And they're locked up. And the ghost is stabilized, but was a villain defeated? Was there even a villain in this movie? That, I think, is the question. Oh, that's a great I, question. I don't think that there really was. Because, remember something, Birch is not trying to sell technology to Hydra. He's just trying to sell it to the highest bidder. Whoever that may be, it could have been Bill Gates that wants to get into quantum technology. It could be, it could be anybody. It would probably be Disney. Um, so he's greedy, but is he a villain? I don't really know if there's a villain in this movie. Which, again, makes it very unique for the MCU. I would agree with that. Um I think it's safe to say that Birch got apprehended and we don't have to worry about him. Um, the question really does become, did Ava learn her lesson? Because she's ready to go off on her own and Foster says, I'm not leaving you alone. And they're free to go. Yeah. They haven't been caught. So I think the door is open for them to come back. It's just a matter of are we going to assume that she got her happy ending and we're done with her? And is there mm -hmm. going to be a new villain? Um, I don't know. I definitely think the door is open, but I think it's fair to say that this movie is, is villainless. Speaking of the ghost, though, one thing we didn't get to talk about... Um, I love her house. And we didn't talk about um, Hank's house yeah. last time. I love both of them. I, I love the sets that they built for this franchise. Um, I think, you know, it really, it put the ghost in a haunted house almost. Mm -hmm. I think that was really cool. So I really like the environment that they put her in. And I like that Hank's house comes full circle. Now that he's got Janet back, he shrinks it and brings it to the most gorgeous beach. And, you know, it's nice to know 
that they're well they're meant to live out their days in retirement together yes we think they get their happy ending but then there is that very important after the credit scene right and we don't always talk about after the credit scenes but we have to talk about this one because it sets up avengers endgame because they send they send scott into the quantum realm to try and recover some more quantum energy this is the part i forgot (laughs) and he's only supposed to be in there for about five seconds and in the five seconds between him entering and what is supposed to be his exit time, the, the snapping happens, and Hope, Hank, and Janet are all snapped away, and that's how he gets stuck in the quantum realm. What an incre- what a powerful scene, an incredible setup for Endgame, but also so very sad for that exact reason. You think Hank and Janet are finally going to have their happy ending, and bye. No, and even with Hope, too, the three of them are working together to presumably finish what Hank and Janet started. They're passing the torch to her. You know, they're they're planting all the seeds that she's going to move forward with Scott now. Right. Um, It's incredibly sad. And especially, too, we didn't uh, hit on this when Janet comes back. I, I don't know why I get a lump in my throat every single time. When when she goes to hug her daughter, I don't know if it's that the acting is that powerful or I just believe the story so much. I really do get sad and so emotional every time that she comes back. And we've watched it like three times this week. I think it's column A, column B. I think the story is good. I think it it's more column B. I think it's more on Evangeline Lilly and Michelle Pfeiffer. They're that good. Yeah. yeah. And we haven't really talked about Michelle Pfeiffer here because... She's other than Walton Goggins, she's the only other real new character that really carries that much weight. I mean, yes, Ghost, yes, Lawrence Fishburne as well as as Foster, but really the whole movie is about getting her back. I think she's fantastic in this. And Michelle Pfeiffer, I feel like had kind of taken a break from Hollywood for a while. Like you didn't see her for a very long time. Right, because she's in Maleficent too, but that was well after this. Right. So to see her come back, to see her come back very strong, I thought she did a really nice job in this role. Same. And, um, you know, I think she appreciated, appreciated it too because a lot of the roles that she's playing now, she's a mother, but like an older mother. She's not grandma yet, but um, she was appreciative of being able to play a superhero. And, I mean, really, when you take a look at what the Wasp is to the comics... I, I don't think that they established that enough that she really was one of the original Avengers. I think that's something that unfortunately they changed when they started adapting the films. Um, I really wish we would have gotten more of that, that really she was like the OG female superhero. And I'm sure that in time we will get a Wasp franchise. I would watch a Wasp franchise. I would watch Evangeline Lilly do three of, of her own movies. Absolutely. Um, and it's funny that you bring up Michelle Pfeiffer because the tie into the MCU, whereas now she's kind of embracing these roles. On the other side of the coin, you have Marissa Tomei that's gone on record to say it's not that she necessarily regrets doing Spider-Man, but she does not feel that she's getting approached with roles other than smoke show mom smoke show aunt because now that she's done it for as aunt may 
she doesn't feel like she's getting the same scripts that she used to where it was more diverse. She feels like she's now being typecast because she did these two Spider-Man movies. I mean, I think it's different when you get to see Michelle Pfeiffer, who I believe is older than her, get to be the superhero and she's a supporting actress to Spider-Man. And an, and an, an Oscar-winning actress, mind you. I can't say that I'd be too happy about that. But at the same time, ageism in Hollywood is very real and you should just appreciate what you get. Right. Um, I, I'm sure that somewhere in there, there's a script for her that is more than just being hot Aunt May. At this point, I hate to say it. I, I think she's a little bit too young to take on the roles that Michelle Pfeiffer's getting. She's she's at a weird age. Yeah, she's very much in the middle. And and she's, I mean, she looks great. She's aged well. So she, it's, a very, it's a very bizarre window to be in right now. Though I'm sure if you really dug through those scripts, you find that really artsy piece that would pay you nothing. Um, and <laughs> that's probably the big problem. That is probably the biggest problem of all. Money talks. Money talks and you know what else walks. But was this movie, you know what else? No. I think this movie's better than the first one. And I really like the first Ant-Man movie, but this is the rare sequel that was better than the first. Amen. And I can't think of a ton of Marvel movies where the sequel is better than the first. Guardians? Yes. Captain America? Yes. This... I just said it. Avengers? Hmm. Yeah, I think Avengers Infinity War was better after you realize it's not a movie about the Avengers and it's a movie about Thanos. I think I think Infinity War becomes better. You have to watch it a lot. Right. But if you think about Age of Ultron, I think that's just as good, if not better, than Avengers. I think it's very good. I think it's a very good... It's more than just your bridge movie. Yes. But everything after the first Iron Man movie is a letdown. Thor The Dark World is the worst movie in the MCU by far. Yeah. We don't have a second Hulk movie, and it doesn't seem like we're going to, because in spite of the fact that Disney owns the rights to Marvel, for some reason Universal owns the rights to the Hulk film franchise. So even if Disney wanted to do another Hulk movie, they can't because Universal has it. You don't need it. Leave it alone. I also don't think that you need it. Um, we don't have the next Black Panther yet. We don't have the next Captain Marvel yet. You know, these things will soon come. Um, but certainly this one is... I mean, th this is an exceptional sequel. Yeah, I mean... I don't like the first Ant-Man. Did I say I don't like the first Ant-Man? You may have mentioned it once. This completely redeems the franchise in my eyes. It certainly establishes Ant-Man as an integral part of the adventures, especially for me. Uh, I still will maintain, as much as I don't like the first one, Like I, I really wish it didn't exist. I wish that they had been able to condense the first one with this one and 
make that our introduction to Ant-Man. And then maybe you get your Ant-Man and the Wasp. You get those two sequels now in the post-Endgame world. Um, You know, I certainly stand corrected with what I said last week is that you can't have a couple of throwaway lines about the Pym Particles to have Ant-Man make sense in the context of the Avengers. You certainly needed a full movie for all of the substance, all of the history, all of the science behind it. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of wished that they had condensed them. As far as the context of the Avengers goes, now having viewed the second one and taking into account the Wasp and her whole story arc, I'll admit you do kind of need the first one because honestly, if we're just given the story about Janet Van Dyme, it's a lot less effective if we would have just seen the flashback at the beginning as opposed to now we've had an entire movie where we're invested in hope and her story. I think if she had just come out swinging as the wasp, we probably wouldn't care as much. I do appreciate the arc seeing her come into her own as the wasp. However, I still hate the first movie and all the effects. This one does it. What what the hell has happened in the last seven days? You didn't have this hatred of this movie last week. You just didn't love it that much. I said it made me nauseous. You said the POV made you nauseous, not the movie in its entirety. Maybe you've just had some time to sit on this movie. I think, honestly, it's comparing it to this one because this literally addressed all of my issues with the first one. They got rid of the garbage POV. They utilized his superhero abilities to push the story forward more with the shrinking and the enlarging. Whereas I get the first one, we were just trying to get his head around it a little bit, but I just feel like they just did this one so much better on in every single facet, using the setting to tell the story, developing the characters, Developing the superpowers, having them come into their own. They just did everything so much better. And that's where I think if you condense them, it would have been a much stronger first film. But for the sake of the Wasp, I will say I appreciate the first one a little bit more now, even though it's terrible. We're interested in knowing what you have to say. What is your review of Ant-Man and the Wasp? You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. You can also email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. News of the week coming up in just a moment, but first, a quick break. If you're thinking of booking a trip to a Disney destination, you have to contact Jackie Zalezi from Magical Vacation Planner. My husband and I recently celebrated our 10-year wedding anniversary and wanted to go on a trip, just the two of us. Jackie suggested Disneyland, knowing we'd never been and I had been dreaming of going. I am so thankful for her suggestion, as it was the most magical way to celebrate. Jackie got us a fantastic deal, but still constantly check for discounts to make sure we are guaranteed the lowest price. Having recently visited Disneyland, she was a great source for helpful information and had suggestions for everything, including meals, Max Pass, even places to visit in Los Angeles on our non-park day. Upon arrival at our hotel, we experienced the easiest check-in because Jackie had taken care of everything. Throughout our trip, Jackie was in constant contact, making sure we had everything we needed and answering any questions we had. Our vacation was 
perfect. All thanks to Jackie Zalezi from Magical Vacation Planner. Needless to say, the biggest news of this week is the reopen of Walt Disney World in Orlando. We saw Animal Kingdom and Magic Kingdom reopen this past weekend. Um, as of as of tomorrow, you will see the reopening of the MGM Studios and Epcot Center. Um, but here's what we saw on social media. We saw people... APs. It happened at the AP preview, I believe. Which I do just want to say, um, if you want to see what the parks were like, go check out Lou Mangiello's oh Facebook. Oh my god. He did such a phenomenal job. And he deserves an iced tea. Yes, he does. He deserves his green tea. It took too long to get there. Lou is a friend of ours, a friend of the show. He went and did a review of uh, of Summer Magic with us a couple of weeks ago, which I'll, I'll put that in the show notes as well. So is his lovely wife, Deanna, so I don't want to put her on blast. I, I but know, sorry, The Deanna. man needed a green tea. man needed his green tea. Um, yeah, you can go check out the, uh, the Lou Mangello Facebook page or the WDW Radio Facebook page. Go watch that to get an idea. But what happened that day um, was that there were two people in particular that took advantage of a situation. Um, Splash Mountain is closing. It's getting the Princess and the Frog refurb. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. They went in and basically bought as much as they physically could carry out of the parks. I believe they, and the picture is circulating, they each had about two large garbage bags full. And if you go on to eBay, because I had to look, all of this stuff is up for sale now. I mean, they bought the pins. They bought the cups. They bought the shirts. They bought the plush. The $25 Br'er Rabbit plush doll is now on eBay for $170. Supposedly, Disney is monitoring this, and if they catch you, the, the word is that they're going to take your AP away. I hope so. I hope so as well. But I have to say, and I'm, I'm, I'm usually... Not very critical of the cast member. In the last couple of weeks, we have sat here and pounded the table for the cast members. However, in this case, the fact that you had to give them trash bags to carry out the amount of merchandise that they bought. And it's not, they didn't buy one of these, one of these, one of these. They bought the farm. They went in there like supermarket sweep and threw everything (laughs) they could into baskets and bags and you let them do it. I mean, does somebody need 10 Br'er Rabbits? You had to know they were buying these to put them on eBay because they're going to be a collector's item. How they were able to even get away with this, I have no idea. I mean, look, we've said it before and we'll say it again. Disney is a business. I am not a cast member. I don't know what the rules are. Disney is hurting pretty bad right now after being closed. So they might just be like, you know what? This is great. Bottom line, we're making money. It doesn't matter what we sold in in whatever quantities. So should it be enforced as far as limiting the merchandise? Yes. But on the other hand, shame on you. You should not be hoarding. You should not be reselling at a higher value and you should not be overlooking 
why they are refurbishing this ride in the first place, and you certainly shouldn't exploit that. Correct. Or take advantage of somebody, you know, there are a lot of people who are very upset that Splash Mountain is closing. Not that they're against the reason why it's closing, but it's their favorite attraction. They grew up with it. Maybe they're going down to the parks next week, and what they really wanted was a Br'er Rabbit. They wanted something that they could take with them, a keepsake of their ride. And now you can get it for almost 10 times the value on eBay. It's not fair. I get it. Did you break a law? No. But there's a code of ethics I think you kind of should have followed. But I think that door swings both ways. Mm. Listen, at the end of the day, money talks. We just talked about it a few moments ago, right? These people know that these are collector's items that are going to go for big money. I, I just feel like if it didn't end up on social media, if the picture wasn't circulating, would Disney be monitoring this now? I'm glad the picture's circulating. I'm, so am I. I appreciate, I don't know who took it, but I'm, I'm glad that they did. I'm glad they put them on blast. But just think twice before you go and raid whatever is left in the Splash Mountain gift shop. My understanding is there ain't much left anymore between what those people grabbed and what everybody has grabbed in the last few days that it has been open. But Well, here's the thing. We don't know when this refurbishment is happening. Right. It could be another six months to a year. They might be giving everyone one last chance to ride it. And for as controversial as it is right now, they might keep it open for another year because the other side of the coin is that so many trips were canceled this year because of the pandemic. So for those that do want to go on one more time, it's not necessarily fair to not give them that chance either. I also think Disney's in a position right now where... They can't do right by anybody. Well, there's that. But the other thing is... You've got Disney 50 coming up in right. Right. Five, five and a half months, right? As it is, the projects that were supposed to be done for Disney 50, you are not supposed to see cranes. You're not supposed to be seeing caution tape, no temporary walls, no road cones. Well, guess what? That's out the window. Mm-hmm. I don't think that during their golden celebration... That they can get a that 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 they can really have one of their premier attractions because it is there's the dash for splash the race for space at rope drop in the morning I mean people run to get online for that attraction I don't know that you can have a marquee attraction down during your fiftieth anniversary and I don't know that you can flip it in five and a half months you can't you can't you could try and it's going to look bad going to look very cheap and thrown together disney as we know does not do anything cheap or thrown together i don't think and we don't like to speculate on this show so with that being said i'm going to speculate (laughs) i don't think i don't think that ride goes down for refurb until the earliest january 2022 because i also don't think disney 50 lasts one year i think they're going to i think they're going to do a two-year celebration for the 50th because You have all of these people that had trips canceled that are now getting pushed back into next year. In addition to the demand of the general public who had not yet made reservations that want to be there for the 50th. And if your projects aren't done, I think they're still going to want to celebrate with no cranes, no caution tape, no temporary walls, no road cones, no nothing. I do think the 50th anniversary is going to be a two-year celebration. 
Now, with that being said, stretching it over two years, are they going to wait two years to start construction on this ride? In all likelihood, no. But I can see them saying we're doing a two-year 50th anniversary celebration, but January 10th of 2022, because I think they'll keep the ride open through Christmas, New Year's, and Marathon Weekend. When they go into the slower time of the year, right before spring break, mm. that's when I think you're going to see Splash Mountain go down for a refurb. That's my guess. I could be wrong, but that's my guess as I sit here right now. No, I definitely agree with you. And I think that they're also taking into account that there are people who are still not going to want to travel next year. Absolutely. The travel industry is going to hurt for a long time. Yeah, I think that you're right, unfortunately. But we're not going to have that conversation again because everybody's been having that conversation for the last few months. And this is this is your one hour and 20 minutes of Disney happy. And we'll try to keep it there as much as we can. So we're just going to leave that there. But thank you guys so much for joining us this and every week on Monorail Radio. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice. Uh, if you feel so inclined, you can also leave a review on iTunes. They're always greatly appreciated. You know that we love to hear from you and interact with you. So other than there, you can also email us monorealradio at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Monorail Radio. And of course, all of the links to the shows, the social media. If, if you can't find us or if you lose track of where you are, monorealradio.com is your home for everything Monoreal Radio. Thank you so much for joining us this week. We will be back next week with a Disney Plus roulette. Please let the numbers be in our favor. Please, I beg you, to whatever deity you believe in, I just beg that the numbers hit well. It's just like I'm in a real casino. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.